Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And while you're turning, uh, we have two things that uh, we want to pray for. Uh, the first is uh, one of our young men, Corey Kuhn, uh, who wouldn't have wanted to come down here. So I'll just point to him. He's right there in the balcony. Is leaving uh, on Tuesday for Cusco, Peru for two months with Mission of the World. And uh, for the next several weeks, we're going to be sending out teams and commissioning uh, ministries and so on in our worship services. But uh, we certainly want to pray for Corey today and uh, over the next couple of months, and we will do that, Corey. And then further, uh, you know this is Memorial Weekend, and uh, It would be wrong for us to come and worship and enjoy the freedom of coming to worship uh, without acknowledging that uh, we are blessed to live in a country where there is that freedom. And it was bought with uh, great sacrifice, is still being bought with great sacrifice by uh, those who gave their lives, and that's who we remember this week and and those who served and were willing to give their lives for us. We thank God for that. Uh, There's no reason we should have have the blessing of being born in this free country. That too is God's grace to us. We don't deserve it, but uh, it was bought at a high price. Let's remember that this is not just a long barbecue weekend or big sales but uh, this is a, a time to remember and thank God for that blessing of the freedoms that we have, and certainly not the least of which is the freedom to come and worship together. Uh, I didn't worry one bit on my way here about that freedom being taken away today, uh, but uh, in many, many parts of the world, that is the case. So let's bow together. Lord, we have all day today been talking about uh, being uh, a witness. That's what you called us to do. And you have said you would empower us. And so, Lord, we pray now specifically for Corey as he goes to uh, Cusco, Peru, that you would empower him to be a witness among those who are there and uh, those who, who live there and those who are serving there and those who will come uh, over the summer on short-term teams that he'll be assisting. Lord, we pray uh, that you will keep him well, that you will um, uh, protect him from the evil one, and uh, that uh, you'll protect all those that are there uh, from the attacks of the evil one who just would not want uh, things to go well this summer. Lord, we pray that the harvest will be many souls, many souls into the kingdom. And Lord, today, even as we have mentioned, we thank you for the freedom that we have to be here today, to worship without fear, that that's going to be taken away today, Lord, But we acknowledge that there are many that have gone before us who laid down their lives for this freedom 
many of whom didn't get to enjoy it throughout their lives, many families who sacrificed because of the loss of one in a war or a conflict. And Lord, there are many more, and there are many among us today here who have uh, faithfully served our country, and we thank you for them and pray your blessing upon them and their families who also sacrificed in that. Lord, we don't deserve any of this, but that's the nature of your grace, isn't it? May that be a reminder for us. And now, Lord, as we go into your word, will you teach us? Will you encourage us? Will you remind us? Will you convict us? Will you make us who we ought to be as your people? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder, we are going to pick up, and of course we're going straight through the book of Acts, so in in one sense we always kind of pick up where we left off, but today we're really going to do that almost literally with uh, the last things that I said last week. But uh, we've, we've been looking at this day of Pentecost for the last several weeks. We see uh, that God poured out His Holy Spirit on that day, that there were visible signs speaking in other languages and so on, and people were amazed by that. But what was even more amazing was this uh, message that was preached that we looked at last week that contained uh, the gospel itself, who Jesus is, what he did. And at the end of that message, now I remind you, even as uh, uh, Mark mentioned earlier, that on that day, there were not 3,000 professions of faith. There were 3,000 souls that entered the kingdom. Approximately, probably more, I suspect. That's what we see at that day. Well, what happened? How did how they get there? Well, at the end of this message, we see in verse 37, and that's where we'll pick up our reading. Now, when they heard this, that was the message that had just been preached, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We ended last week with repentance. Acknowledging that in all likelihood there were some who here were cut to the heart and there were others who heard nothing. Because it's the work of God's Spirit. 
in hearts that moves them. But here, they said, we got to do something. He said, okay, here, here it is. Repent. Now, I emphasized last week that that's not a work. Repent and be baptized. That's not do these two works and you'll get to heaven. But these are a result of that heart that had been cut. And I would say that heart that was cut was a heart that was a new heart that God had regenerated, had reached in and given a new heart that had to respond to the truth of the Gospel. So let me explain it again. Repentance unto life, our standards say this, is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, that's where it starts, an understanding of how repugnant our sin is. You see, anytime we underestimate it, we're not going to repent or we won't fully repent or we won't keep repenting. If we think, well, yeah, I make a lot of mistakes. I probably tip over into sin once in a while. You know, anytime you minimize that, then you won't be driven outside of yourself because your tendency will be, yeah, I better fix that. And so for them saying, what do we do to fix this? Peter says, you don't fix it. You repent. God's doing the work understanding how serious our sin is, and the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. In other words, when we, we understand what Christ has done, He's just preached about that. And we say, okay, that's where the mercy is. God's got to do it. It's not about something that I will do here. Does with grief and hatred of His sin. So it's not a flippant thing. Grief and hatred of, of your sin. Now most of us at some point have grieved over the loss of a loved one. Have you ever, even once, felt that depth of emotion over your sin? Grief and hatred of our sin does turn from it Unto God. Remember, we said, look, you don't just turn from your sin, but you got to turn somewhere and you turn to God with full purpose and endeavor of after a new obedience. Now, why is repentance needed? You know, if you find yourself outside of Christ today, there may be a number of issues that you have. You, you may be saying, you know, I just can't grapple with this whole thing. If, if there is a God, there, why is there suffering in this world? Or you may say, you know what, I'm, 
I'm actually pretty happy with my present life. I don't feel the need for anything else. Or I want to be in control of my own life. Those are all things I've heard from real people who've said, I'm not ready to come to Christ. And those may not be the ones that you grapple with, but, but there's something that you would say, this is the reason. And here's my question for you. If you find yourself outside of Christ today, what are you doing with your guilt? There may be these other issues out there, but what are you doing with your guilt? Several reactions. Well, I, I never really thought of that, or I try not to think about that, or I don't really feel guilty. That's probably the most common one. A few weeks ago, I received a, a traffic ticket. Okay, I received a traffic ticket. <laughs> Get it out of your system. It was not from anyone in this church that I received it to, so, so don't ask them. I won't tell you what it was for, but let me, let me s- simply say that uh, some places where stop signs are in the ground are most unfortunate, okay? <laughs> now... My mind, frankly, was a million miles away uh, that day. And you 16-year-olds, I want you to learn from my mistake. You focus on what you're doing when you drive. I have no excuse for that. Anyway, I deserved the ticket. And I told the officer I deserved the ticket. Evidently, he agreed with me. (laughs) So next time I'm going to try tears, I think. But uh, (laughs) because I was guilty, I did not go to court. I just paid my fine. But let's draw a different scenario. I went downtown and I went in there and I, there was a lady, nice lady behind the glass, bulletproof glass, I think it is. <laughs> and uh, so I just, you know, gave her the money. What if I said, I'm going to fight this? And so my court date arrives and I see the officer that was doing his job and so on. Now I know I'm, I'm guilty. But I'm in the room there, traffic court. If you've ever been there, you know there's a lot of people packed in there, most of them grumpy and um, most of them claiming innocence. Otherwise, they probably would have paid the fine. Uh, but So I'm in traffic court. My name is called. This didn't happen. I, this is a scenario, okay? My name is called, and I go up before the judge, and he says, uh, Mr. Weldon, 
Here's what the officer says you did. Are you guilty or not guilty? And I stand up and I say, Your Honor, I do not feel guilty. What would be his response? You see, it's irrelevant, isn't it? Now, this is in a flawed human court. They're good courts. They're usually right in my view. I have high respect for the courts, but but they're human. What would make you think that you could pull that one on the righteous God of the universe and He would say, oh, you don't feel guilty? Okay, you're off the hook. The question is not how you feel. The question is what you are. And that's why repentance is necessary. Because we are guilty whether we choose to feel it or not. The benefit is forgiveness. Let me repeat what I said last week. It says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, but that doesn't mean you've earned your forgiveness, as we said earlier. Now let me make another important distinction, that is between repentance and penance. Sometimes those can get confused. Penance is the doctrine of one being able to uh, carry out certain disciplines to try to take care of the guilt of their sin, to try to pay for at least a portion of their sin. And people have tried that since the garden. But there have been churches that have permitted that, fostered it. And a wrong view of that leads to real problems. It, it, it deflects from the atonement. You see, if there's things we can do for our own sin, then the cross wasn't as necessary as the Bible says it was. And it leads to other er- errors like purgatory, indulgences, invoking the saints and other things. But it also creates legalism and formalism and those problems that go with that. That's different from repentance, which is what we just described. Turning from it to God. What's the sign then of the new life? Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, So those who received His Word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's significant that they were called uh, uh, to be baptized. Then they were baptized because up until that point, the only ones that were baptized really 
were Gentiles converting. Now there was John the Baptist, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But here what we see is Jews submitting to that which they had never been required to before in the name of one who they previously rejected. Why would they do that? That's evidence of a repentant heart that is seeking God. That's been cut to the heart. That's been renewed in the heart. I want us to notice too here that right here, this great evangelistic message has been preached. And tied to the evangelistic message is you need to receive the sign of entrance into the covenant community, into the church. Now why don't we see that that much in preaching when we see vast evangelistic things in our day? Well, part of it is because a lot of them are not tied to the church. So they are not emphasizing the importance of coming into the church, but here Peter did. So what does baptism signify? Well, it's a sign of our engrafting in to Christ. Now notice I said it's a sign of it, not the thing itself. We're not saved by being baptized. And it's essential that we always make that distinction between the sign and the real thing. Last Thursday, I took Connie and Abby to the Charlotte airport to fly to Washington, D.C., and then over to Turkey to see our grandson Wyatt and his parents, who happen to be there too. As I approached the Charlotte airport, and if you've done this, you, you see it, it's true at any air. There are signs that say, Charlotte Douglas Airport. Now, if I were to climb up on that pole and take the sign down, and take the sign and throw it into the river, I would not be throwing the Charlotte Douglas Airport into the river, would I? I would just be throwing the sign into the river because it's not the thing. It's a sign that points to it. And that's what baptism is. It's not the real thing. It is a sign. Represents. And if you don't make that distinction, it can lead to dangerous places. You know, if somebody says, uh, tell me about how you came to Christ or, or how you would get into heaven, if you say, well, I was baptized, you see, you're confusing the sign with the real thing. Because baptism doesn't save you. So, who should be baptized and receive that sign? Well, our standards say baptism should be administered to those who profess their faith in Christ and to their children. Where'd they get that? Well, one of the places they got that is this passage itself. 
It's, look at, at what it says, verse 39. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now at first glance you may say, well it's only saying that salvation is available for us and for our children. Well, that would be what it would look like at first glance. That's why you've got to take a second and third glance and see what it's really saying and also look at the context. The context is Pentecost. The faithful Jews were attending. They are looking for a Messiah. They are familiar with God's promises. Now, would this promise sound familiar to these Jews? Yes. Absolutely. It's almost a direct quote from Genesis 17. Let me read to you from Genesis 17. I won't have you turn to it, but you can look later in, in 17, 7 and 10. I'll establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You see, it's talking about for them and for their children after them. These promises were in relation to receiving the sign of God's covenant in the Old Testament, which in that case was circumcision. Who was to receive it? Well, the adult believer and the child. In this case, the son. And you might even say, well, that, that's not really parallel then because that was just for male children and you know, that was some Old Testament thing. Well, the New Testament explains that this covenant is a new and better one. It's a new and better covenant. If children were included in the old covenant, would the new covenant be better if children were not included at least to the same level of receiving the sign for entrance into the covenant community? In fact, the New Testament speaking to the um, well, that, it's not parallel because that was just for the male child. In the New Testament, it says now no, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You see, it's a new covenant, and so the sign is going even in a, a broader way. Now, this is why I wanted to talk to you about the context. You take a good Jewish parent who would see this connection. It may not be as clear to you, but they would see that connection. They would hear these words that they heard again and again throughout their lives, saying, okay, well that has to do with I will be your God, and you'll be my people, and here's a sign for you and for your child. And so they would say, alright, the new sign is then baptism. That's the only sign for entrance into the covenant community. So, so here's the picture. We have Jewish parents coming and saying, we have repented. We want to be baptized. And the disciples would say, yes, we will baptize you. And they, they said, this promise is for you and your children. And we want our children baptized too, of course. Because our children have always been included in this wonderful covenant. 
Now, here's my speculation. Let me give you a, a theory here. I have a theory that if at that point, if they had come and said, we have repented, we want to be baptized, and of course we want our children to be baptized as well out of obedience, if Peter and the apostles would have said, oh no, 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 let me explain, now children aren't included. Now, we don't give them signs anymore until maybe later in life if they profess their faith. I think there would have been a couple more verses in here, and it would have been about the riot of the Jewish mothers, the Jewish parents, who would say, what makes this better? That's false advertising. That's not better. That's a worse covenant. I don't want any part of that if my children are not included. Those verses, by the way, are not there because I'm convinced that the adults were baptized as were the children. Quickly, the, the third uh, thing we see here is the gift that accompanies new life. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this fulfillment was less than an hour old and it was already beginning to revolutionize Peter's life. Naturally, he was going to mention it. Now, this is theologically what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When someone uh, receives Christ... The Holy Spirit. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit who comes into their life. Now let me make one more distinction today between baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit. We'll talk more about this later in Acts. Baptism of the Spirit is what takes place with uh, every believer. They are baptized by the Spirit. The Spirit indwells them. Then we are to be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. And that has to do with obedience and following Christ and growing in Christ and so on. Every believer always has the Holy Spirit because he's been baptized with the Spirit. Every believer is not equally filled with the Spirit at all times. And again, we will talk about that later. It's interesting for those who would equate the baptism of the Holy Spirit with some kind of outward miraculous sign like speaking in tongues, which we see earlier where they were speaking in languages that were heard. It was an outward sign. But we don't see any of that happening with these 3,000 souls that came to Christ. So that's not an evidence of being baptized by the Spirit. The evidence of the presence of the Spirit was not tongues. It was what we will look at next week, and that is what their response was. It was that they studied the Word of God, and they prayed, and they fellowshiped, and they loved each other so radically that people couldn't ignore it. And that's what we'll... Uh, go into next week. One final thing, verse 40. 
it says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. They were not just saved to wait around for heaven. They weren't just saved to enjoy one another. They were saved from a lifestyle of a perverse generation. Conversion, real conversion, is from something to something. Christianity is obsessed with changed lives. That's the evidence of having the Holy Spirit in you. You're not the same person. It meant that they were going to have to change communities. But there was a new community in town. The church. And they needed to identify with it. Let's bow together. Lord, we, we are grateful for the gifts you give us of the ability to repent of that wonderful sign of baptism, of the precious Holy Spirit that empowers us to live out this life until you call us home. Lord, will you give us evidence of that in our lives? Or if, if it's not there, Lord, will you, will you convict our hearts and give us a new heart so that we may respond to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.